Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. I've been watching Ken Burns' Vietnam War series. For many reasons, I didn't want to. Not least, his stylistic tropes and mid-cult public television sensibility are pretty stale. But a British friend insisted I give it a try, and she was right. The archive footage from all sides is brilliant. The personal testimony of the war's veterans from all sides, compelling. And Burns and his collaborator Lynn Novick do not cut away for the sake of sensitive viewers. You see what the human body looks like after military ordnance intersects with it. But the real reason I didn't want to watch the Vietnam War is I lived through that era. I guard my memories of those days and don't trust anyone to be able to explore the history of the war, attempts to stop it, and the way those of us who spent our adolescence and early adulthood were shaped by its endless negative effects on American society. I just don't trust them to do so with the accuracy necessary to honor my remembrance. But the documentary has succeeded in respecting my past. I can tell, because it has dredged up inchoate feelings that, for the most part, I have suppressed for fifty years. A combination of fear, panic, guilt, something must be done, what will happen next, all experienced at the same time. It has also crystallized an idea for me. We all speak of cyberspace as a disruptor of our perceptions of reality. But there's something else that challenges our ability to perceive, experience, and remember the real world in an unfiltered way. Media space. The flow of images unmoored from context, delivered electronically, which we imbibe for so many hours every day. American society today feels like it's coming apart at the seams. But watching Burns' documentary, you ask yourself, why? Because there's no comparison between the objective reality of then and now. Yes, Donald Trump is president, and that's a national trauma. But looking at Burns' film with its images from 67 and 68, pre-cyber, pre-saturation media, demonstrates a significant difference in how we apprehend the world and respond to it. The reality, then, half a million troops in combat deployment, more tons of explosives detonating over a single country than were detonated in the whole of World War II, riots in American cities every summer with hundreds killed, major political assassinations as a regular feature of national life. The media space reality of today has created a sense of panic that is comparable to the 60s, but not based in the same scale of trauma. Colin Kaepernick took a knee and is blacklisted, but is that a political action comparable to marching over the arcing roadway of the Edmund Pettus Bridge and into the maw of Bull Connor and his cops and dogs? The idea of media space, precursor to or subset of cyberspace, has been something I've been trying to figure out for a very long time. In 1990, I almost made a documentary for Britain's Channel 4 television called Inside Dan Quayle's Brain. The thesis was simple. Vice President Quayle, often mocked for his lack of intellectual heft, was the first person who had grown up completely in the age of television and get a heartbeat away from the presidency. Surely television's influence had to affect his perception and understanding of the world. His formative cultural experiences would be completely different than those of the president he served, George H.W. Bush. 
Channel 4 gave my producer and I a little seed money for a research trip to New York. We flew over to see if there was enough surviving footage of 50 sitcoms, dramas, and news programs to prove my thesis. We spent a couple of enlightening days at the Museum of Broadcasting, combing through hours of archived programs, absorbing the fictional world that shaped Dan Quayle's and my view of reality. It goes without saying that watching programs like Beulah, about a wealthy white family's incomparably wise African-American maid, played by Hattie McDaniel, who won an Oscar for playing Mammy in Gone with the Wind, and watching other shows like Father Knows Best, The Donna Reed Show, and Leave it to Beaver, completely reinforced the stereotypes that seemed so anachronistic and comic coming out of Quayle's vice presidential mouth. Keith Griffiths, my producer, thought I should present the show in a living room like Donna Reed's. The opening would be me, opening the gate of a white picket fence and inviting viewers to come in. The day we were supposed to sign the contract to make the program, the Channel 4 commissioning editor for arts, Valdemar Januszczak, faxed my producer to say he'd forgotten what had enthused him about the idea, so not to bother. He wasn't going to do it. Didn't matter. I had learned a lot researching inside Dan Quayle's brain on his time. I spent an hour speaking with New York University professor Neil Postman, author of Amusing Ourselves to Death, a classic about the effect of television culture on American society. Postman was one of the five most brilliant men I have ever met and a gifted explicator of complex ideas. Amusing Ourselves to Death builds on research of another remarkable man, Professor George Gerbner, who gave me a private tutorial, on the phone, for almost two hours. Gerbner lived an extraordinary life. Born in Budapest in 1919, he managed to get to the U.S. just as World War II was on the verge of breaking out. He couldn't keep away from the fight joined the OSS, and ended up parachuting behind Nazi lines in the Balkans, narrowly dodging death in hit-and-run combat, and seeing the civilization in which he grew up totally destroyed. He became a communications theorist, and served for a quarter of a century as the dean of the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania, America's preeminent academic institution for the study of mass communication. Gerbner understood intuitively that television represented a break from earlier forms of mass media as a potential shaper of how people perceive reality. In the mid-1960s, he established the Cultural Indicators Project, the first longitudinal study on the effect of television on viewers' attitudes to the world around them. Gerbner noted that the average American born in the television age has seen tens of thousands of fictional murders on television by the time they graduate high school. This affected their view of the world as being more dangerous than it actually was. In 1981, he was summoned to testify before Congress. He told a subcommittee on communications, the most general and prevalent association with television viewing is a heightened sense of living in a mean world of violence and danger. Fearful people are more dependent, more easily manipulated and controlled, more susceptible to deceptively simple, strong, tough measures and hardline postures. They may accept and even welcome repression if it promises to relieve their insecurities. That is the deeper problem of violence-laden television. 
You can imagine that the television networks, incredibly profitable, didn't like that view. There was plenty of behind-the-scenes pushback against Gerbner and Postman. While researching the ill-fated Dan Quayle's brain, I also spoke with Tom Shales, the Pulitzer Prize-winning television critic of The Washington Post. Shales snorted with derision when I mentioned I hoped to interview Gerbner and Postman for the doc. Oh, God, not them. His view was that of the TV industry. The programs don't have that kind of influence. If someone becomes a murderer, it ain't because he watched a bunch of murders in TV dramas growing up. That, of course, clearly missed the point. TV does have powers of persuasion. Why else do manufacturers pay a lot of money to advertise their products on it? Not once or twice, but constantly. But if you could prove in a court of law that watching 20,000 murders on TV could move an identifiable group in society to killing, that would lead to a hell of a lawsuit. Gerbner's intent was not to provide lawyers with a basis for suing TV companies. As someone who had grown up in a society that turned itself over to fascism, he understood how fear of violence leads a society to embrace a strong man who promises order. He also understood the role mass media plays in creating fears at variance with reality, and was simply seeking to document it with academic rigor. His ideas offer an explanation for people embracing fascism. They also explain that inchoate feeling I had watching the Vietnam War documentary of being back in those days when virtually every political leader I admired was gunned down. When I had to inform Gerbner and Postman my program would not be happening, they were both very gracious and expressed no surprise. Their ideas seem unexceptionable. Watch how a child's behavior is instantly, if temporarily, modified by watching TV, and you can accept that theoretically... It is likely that repeated exposure to television will subtly alter the way people act in the real world. But for some reason, too many who work in the heart of the television industry can't acknowledge that fact. Both men died just as the age of social media was dawning. I wonder what they would have made of the even more intense ecology of fear that is a hallmark of Twitter and Facebook. Social media is the marriage of cyberspace and media space. Predictably, panic and relentless outrage have become the primary emotions expressed on those platforms. I've been surprised by some of those who have given in to these emotions, friends who have tenured academic posts and written important books, even served in presidential administrations. They seem unable to calmly distinguish between what is real and the feelings dredged up in media space. They should know better. It's not just the present that media space distorts. It also distorts people's understanding of the past. And this is a problem. If your understanding of history is filtered through media space, you may not find your way to a strategy for dealing with the painful reality of now. One little example. Protest is the word that comes across the half-century since the 60s. Civil rights, protests, anti-war protests. But in 67, protest wasn't the end in itself. It was the means to an end, the end of segregation, the end of the war. Today, protest seems to be about protest for its own sake, protest for the sake of reenacting a scene from a news photo or an old newsreel. 
When someone who is under 40 looks at a picture of a march from 1968, they cannot understand the full social and personal mise-en-scene of those participating in the march. In another FRDH podcast, I looked at how using the word resistance as a hashtag was not the same thing as actual resistance. This is what I mean by media space. I think it's what Postman and Gerbner were explaining in their research. Media space is a subset of reality. It can distort our ability to experience reality fully. And this leads to the situation today. Panic and outrage because, despite a million hashtag resistance posts and million women protest marches, Donald Trump is still president. History, from half a century ago or in its first rough draft being written today, if it is to be understood and offer some help in understanding the present, help shape protest and resistance that is about deeds, not just the words themselves, must be the record of reality not the record of events as filtered through media space. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. As you can tell, I'm still working these ideas out. Any suggestions will be gratefully received at the website, where I'm also putting up links about George Gerbner and Neil Postman, as well as one to an episode of Beulah. Please go to www.goldfarbpod.com. There's more to listen to, and you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.